If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Our guest today on Horse Chats is another regular. He's Jonathan McLean or Jonna McLean. He's going to teach us today about 10 steps for starting the young horse under saddle. We started off with Jonna with the initial foal handling, the further he kept talking us through, you know, just safe horse-friendly steps to keep bringing the horse on. We've gone through the initial foal handling, further foal handling, weanling, weanling to yearling, and we're just bringing the horse on in regular steps, in a safe, horse-friendly manner. And we're going to talk today about 10 steps of starting the young horse under saddle. But before I do that, I just want to introduce you to our sponsor today, Sophie Barrington at Archer Creative. They're the experts in equine business marketing. If you'd like to have a website that's appealing, easy to navigate, and then just talk to Sophie at Archer Creative. And her details are on the Horse Chats website. Go to horsechats.com, search for Sophie, search for Barrington, search for Archer Creative. I'm sure you'll have enough words there to search for her. Meanwhile, we'll go back to Jonna. How are you today, Jonna? I'm very well, Glennis. Can you hear me clearly still? I can. I can. Yeah. Now, Jonna, these are 10 steps to starting the young horse under saddle. Okay, the steps that you've given us before from the initial foal handling all the way through and they've sort of, you know, we say safe and horse-friendly, but they've just been logical and they've been such tiny little steps that, you know, it's almost like you can visualise the foal not getting stressed, just, you know, a little bit of, oh, this is a bit outside my comfort zone, but then, you know, you go back, you do something a bit easier, you bring them back again. So the training methods that you're using have been really good. So I'm excited now to talk about starting the young horse under saddle. The first step is to ensure all pressure release systems are intact and able to withstand changes in context. So for someone who hasn't, you know, this is sort of a little bit different terminology, they might want to go back and just listen to a couple of earlier chats with Jonna. Jonna, can you speak about that first one, ensure all pressure release systems are intact? What are the pressure release systems? And just in case someone is coming in and, um, you know, talk about withstanding changes in contact. We talk about stop, go, back, park and yield. So if you could go through those five things first, but also what the pressure release systems mean. I will, Glennis. Um, as previous interviews have uh, revealed that the most important thing about the pressure release systems is the horse understands the answer. Mm-hmm. And when they understand the answer, and it could be just in leading or it could be in stopping or it could be in turning or it could be staying still for a long period of time, which we call parking, those things stop, go, back, park and yield. Uh, the yield at this stage isn't that important, but certainly stop, go, back and park are really important mechanisms for us to be able to examine how well 
or not, our previous session's gone. So they become our yardstick. And that's the wonderful thing about having a very thorough, methodical, safe, and can I say horse-friendly method, is it enables you to examine your previous work, no matter how long apart they are. Um, sometimes they can be up to a year apart, and the horse will still remember the pressure release systems. Unlike um, classical systems that come from very subtle cues, noise, posture, sounds, etc., they're a little bit harder for the horse to be able to have embedded to the point where they are readily retrievable. So the pressure release systems are integral to everything that we're going to be talking about today because, as I think anybody that rides the horse understands, if you apply the reins, that's pressure. If you apply your leg aids, that's pressure. If you ask your horse to stand for a period of time, it should be a single cue to ask the horse to stand. And if he doesn't, then he's probably a little bit worried or he doesn't know the answer. Either way, it helps us work out whether we should be continuing on to the next step or not. So the next step is really making sure that when we have changes in context, and what I mean by that is if you change the paddock or you change the location of your horse uh, into a stable or you start to work the horse in a different area, you might be in the stable at the start and then you'll go to the round yard, that is a change in context. So the easiest way for us to examine as to whether we should be continuing on with what we've previously done or whether we need to um, give him or her a little reminder of the previous session because now we're in the round yard, for example. So that's what I mean by context. Context can also be the weather. It can also be the time of the day or it might be a change of his friends and neighbours. Um, any context at all is a change. So we have to be really aware of those things. Okay. All right. So you talked about, you know, through that the signals or the aids. So you're talking now about the second step, check self-carriage status of the age. So we talk about self-carriage a bit within dressage, but what's the self-carriage status of the aids? The self-carriage status is really making sure that it is completely intact. In other words, self-carriage, when I ask my horse to go, for example, I would like my horse to keep walking until I say otherwise. For example, I should only have to give one, maybe two, Mm-hmm. Um, aids for him or her to walk on and they'll continue walking until I say not to and the same in hand and it's exactly the same when I say can you stop and then stay which is park will, will that status of that self-carriage state stay intact with the change of context or over time you would like to re-examine that and make sure that those things are still very very repeatable and, mm-hmm. and um, then we can consolidate them Okay. Okay. Well, that brings us on to step number three is repeat, consolidate. And you're talking here about a bit in the horse's mouth. Yes. And we haven't talked about that yet. And, and I can't remember if I touched on that um, as, a, as a yearling. But um, as a yearling, you know, we tend to, uh, when we go to shows and certainly in racing by law, any horse that has to go into racetrack has to have a bit in its mouth, for example. And certainly at the sales, that is true as well. So we need to have. Um, our horse to clearly understand the same signals that we used in leading, but now with the bit. So again, it's a changing context, isn't it? Now the pressure isn't so much for stop coming from the noseband of the halter or the head collar. It's now coming uh, from the mouth. So we need to transfer those signals 
And this is part of the mouthing process. This is where the mouthing really starts. Mouthing actually starts with the leading in a head collar, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. um, from a mouth point of view, we have a bit in our horse's mouth, a, a, just a, a little snaffle bit that fits nicely. And then we can ask him or her to go, stop, stand, and then we can begin our turn processes. Everybody will probably realise that I always start off with stop and then go. And I don't do anything until those two processes are really, really solid. Without those two, nothing will stay in place. It will try to default to the to the lesser. So we would like to make sure that in a bit, if we have a um, bit in the horse's mouth, that he understands quite clearly without him opening his mouth or without resistance. And what I mean by resistance is any delay to the pressure. Then we can have those things occurring those aids go, stop, and then turn with no delay. So it means that we're again we're able to examine the um, understanding or how well they know the answer, or it might be that the horse is just a little scared, and it's that environment or that changing context that has made him or her a little scared. So we just go over those simple processes to say, no, 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 everything is fine. This is known. Um, you you understand the answer and try to simplify the question until the horse is able to produce the answer. Mm-hmm. So we do that with the bit. And then, of course, the context is going to change again because soon the reins will be um, from one side of the bit to the rider's hands and on the left-hand side or the near side, it'll go from the bit to the rider's hands uh, in, a, in a bridle format. So this is a really important part of understanding it on the ground that the horse does know the question to the bit. Yes, yes. And I noticed that you said too about, you know, the horse should stop without opening their mouth. So you don't need to get the horse to stop and you don't need to introduce a, a nose band to get them to stop. Is that what you're looking for here? You're very good at reading my mind, Glenn. We, we <laughs> seem to be doing quite a bit on these interviews because that is exactly right. Whenever you need a nose band to keep a horse's mouth shut or you need a noseband to uh, prevent the horse getting its tongue over the bit, for example, it's because the horse doesn't understand the bit in that context. And some horses um, may end up being quite clearly mouthed and have lovely mouths as breaking in horses, but then when we start doing other things with them, fear may creep into it, and so then the horse becomes a little afraid of the cues to the bit. And the classic one is that we generally have to put a noseband on a horse's um, uh, over their nose to clamp their jaw shut because now the reins don't just mean stop and turn. They actually mean put your head down lower and also if you put the head down lower with your hand, then how is the horse able to distinguish the difference between stopping and put your head down? So that's where the confusion generally starts is when people start trying to create a frame with the bit mm-hmm. and that's why we only ever create the outline at the very end. It's a bit like the candles on the cake. It's the very last thing, and you hardly ever have to do it if you do things thoroughly. Okay, good, good. Number four we've got, and you've got here, beware of the importance of context. Try to mimic, to the best of one's ability, the sight and direction of the rain and leg cues. Now, just going over this, are we not mounted yet? We're just mimicking, preparing the horse for the rider, you know, just trying to mimic the sight and direction of rain and leg cues. Exactly, because there's no point getting on it yet because there is not sufficient guarantee 
that um, we will be able to because, again, that is a changing context. So mm-hmm. what I mean by mimic, I mean really making sure that the precise location, direction and application of the signal occurs. Let's say, for example, stop. So you have a horse in a bridle and, and you can say, yes, he stops really lightly from one single cue and then here you do a reverse step with another single cue and I can continue that process and that's lovely. If you now put the reins over the horse's neck and hold the reins as closely to where you would be if you're riding them, however, you're not, you're standing on the near side, and then asking the same cues, you will soon discover that there is a little delay. And that little delay is your opportunity. That is your opportunity to say, hmm, he doesn't understand that context because now I'm not standing beside him. Now I'm standing near his shoulder with my right hand on his offside and my near rein in my left hand. And just that change in context will mean that he probably won't get the stop as well as he did when you trained it in hand. Mm-hmm. So that then, that then will then much more, or can I say, it'll be more readily available to him when he understands that answer for when we're on his back and we're on astride him. Okay, okay. All right, now the next thing we'll bring back to self-carriage again. Testing self-carriage of park by departing your horse but not allowing your horse to move, being careful not to apply any lead signal accidentally. And I'm sorry to sound really boring about this self-carriage state of park, but this is essential because if we can make sure that the only reason our horse moves is that when we lead them from pressure. So in other words, when I lead a horse, I actually don't walk first. I apply pressure to the reins of the head collar and make the horse take the first step. And the same for the stop. I get the horse's legs to stop first. That helps me work out how well the horse goes and stops from pressure because that's the only operational procedures I have when I'm riding him or her. So I want to really make sure that's fine because the next step is all about um, making sure that when we can depart the horse, say three or four metres, and if he does step, you'll generally find that when he does step and then you put that leg back to where you found it, then you go back to your original location, three or four metres ahead, and he'll move exactly the same leg again. So you'll keep placing it back firmly, you know, quietly but efficiently, putting that near four leg back exactly in the footprint where you found it, and then going back out there, and you're daring him to move by moving further away. And you're doing that on the near side and you're doing it on the offside. Because the next step means that when he does move, you can be sure which leg he'll move first because that's what you tried when you did this exercise. So we're trying to discover what will he do when we do get on his back? And the chances are he'll move that one leg first. Mm. If you've got the self-carriage state, then it tells you your horse is calm. And so if he does try to depart, it will be not with any, uh, you know, uh, uh, violence at all. It'll just be, oh, I might leave, and it'll be that same leg. Yeah, yeah. I think something that you said, John, is, you know, sorry to sound boring. I don't think it is boring. I think it's essential, these tiny little steps. You know, you're trying to, you know, and you said again about the safe horse friendly. That's that's sort of the keys I keep coming back to, that the horse understands exactly what's required and if you need to go over it a few times with the horse, it's just to get that foundation best so that it is done quietly, efficiency, just an essential part of training. So, no, definitely not boring. I think, you know, essential. You've, yeah, yeah. But look, let's go on to number six now. We've got the habituation process can now be started by practicing 
the mounting either from the ground or a mounting block. And um, you talk about going doing bareback first, so if you can talk about that. I'll talk about that first. Now, mm-hmm. it depends on one's athleticism and it depends on one's exposure to what they've done when they're a kid. And I mean, we all rode bare, horses bareback a lot, so we're, you know, fairly proficient in these things, even mounting from the ground bareback is sure. not a problem for me. But it may not be the same for everybody. So for somebody that wanted to not do that and take that risk, the reason I do it this way is because the closer I am to the horse by touch, then it means that I can then get any feedback that the horse will give me via its entire body. It may twitch or it might um, do or feel a little bit a little bit rigid um, when I lay on it. Whereas with the saddle, I'm insulated and I, I don't like that isolation. I like to be able to be as really close to the horse as possible. So I'll press on with that. But for the other uh, folk that don't wish to do it that way, getting all these mechanisms done under saddle and habituating your horse to be really stop, go, park um, in under saddle, you can still do it uh, this same way, but you won't be laying on your horse because the first thing I'll be doing when I'm getting them to get used to me jumping up and down, so I'm jumping up and down and I'm mimicking the bounce that I'll be doing mm-hmm. when I need enough power to be able to get on the horse. If the horse is 16 hands or above, then you need to have a little bit of power. You'll also probably have a little bit of mane with your reins in your left hand and your right hand will probably be somewhere around the wither, and you'll just jump up and down. And then when the horse is really, really good at you jumping up and down and doesn't move and and, and park is still there, then I can give him a good old scratch on the neck and anywhere he likes being scratched and say what a, what a great boy or girl he was or she is. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do the same thing on the offside as well. So I'm getting my horse used to me jumping up and down. So again, I'm changing the context. I'm saying, now, just because this looks a little bit fast and a little bit quick, it doesn't mean that it's scary. In fact, if you get it right and stand there and I don't have to correct you, then I'm going to give you a really good scratch. And I'll do that three or four times until I feel as if I can jump up and then slowly as I come down, I'll just brush the horse's shoulder and wither with my body in a downward stroke, so not against the fur, but with the with the um, horse's direction of his fur, which is downwards, and then I'll just give him a scratch. Once I'm able to do that, then if I can jump up high enough and get my sternum over the horse's wither and just stand there very quietly, this is the hardest part, requires a fair bit of balance, but you need to be able to use your left hand to create any mechanisms. Um, if he or she tries to walk away, your left hand needs to say uh, no, but I'm not standing there holding the horse's mouth by any stretch of the imagination. I've got a very, very light contact. So I have to jump up, keep my left hand still, make any corrections if necessary. If I don't have to make those corrections, then I might just jump up onto there with a for maybe a second and hang there and then for and then let myself come down to the ground um, nice and quietly and give him a good scratch again. So that is the beginning to the habituation of mounting. You could also do this with somebody that wanted to leg you up as well. Okay. If you had somebody who's very proficient to work with as well. Where I'm going with all of this is once I can habituate my horse to be able to stand and jump up onto their wither, then with my right hand, I'm going to say, okay, I'm on your wither now. Now I'm just going to give you a good old rub as if I'm grooming my horse all over his back, over his uh, near side uh, near side of his rump because that's where my knee will be going. So I smooth out a path 
by rubbing and scratching the horse in all those areas before I place my right knee over to lay along the horse. So it looks a little odd at the start, um, but generally when the horses, not generally, always, when the horses are parked in self-carriage and you get to this point, then because you can now groom your horse with your right knee and your left hand, the horse is actually getting a really, really good massage and they'd love it. Mm. So mm. it really means that we can then get a very good you know, attachment between um, people and, and, and our horse. And so it makes your horse quieter. One of the best things to do if you have a horse that's really scared and you can keep its legs still, and I use, have used this in large animal rescue scenarios and they're fairly testing scenarios, is giving the horse a really good wither scratch and neck scratch in all those areas, and it just calms them down. So that's why I'm doing that. Yeah, look, what I really love, and that's going through that whole step there, is just the very subtle steps that you're doing, you know, just the jumping up and down to the brushing just against on the downward stroke. It's all very, um, I mean, it's logical if you think about it, but they're very tiny, tiny little steps that people should go through and even someone that's been doing it for a bit. So you're just introducing these tiny little steps all the time. And I think that itself is good. I think that's why we keep getting you back because you've got so much knowledge in that area. You know, you're really a specialist. So I've got to say thanks for that. It's it's really good. Yeah, yeah. Let's go on now to step number seven because you've got, again, keeping your horse in park. Now, we've taught our horse to go into park since, what, the foal, you know, like very young, um, but it's so essential. Yeah, they've learned that. They're quite good at going into park. But it's essential. If you haven't taught your horse that, it's going to be a bit hard to be just mounting them. Absolutely, Glenn. You're so right. It was only, you know, last week I had some very young horses to um, hold for the farrier. And these horses have really only been halter broken, you know, in the last three or four months. So they're very quite, they're quite naive in terms of their pressure release systems. And that was all that I did. I just said, stop, go, park. And I, that's all I concentrated on. And when the farrier came out, and I did, I think I did four, and they'd never had their feet picked up. Okay. Was, the corrections were so easy. There was no, there was no violence with any of it. So even with a naive horse, so this horse will be, you know, be all over it if it's the same horse. Mm-hmm. It'll be easy for them. So mm-hmm. now we can start to say things like, now I'm actually going to uh, get on you, and I'm sitting up. So now I'm astride, and I can still give my horse a little bit of a scratch on the wither with my hands, with my left hand on my right hand, and now I'm going to get off. So when I tend to find that when the horses start to move and they really do would like to walk off or they'd like to, you know, um, nibble your leg or do anything like that, when everything is still and everything is quiet, then I take that opportunity and use dismounting as a reward. Mm-hmm. And I give them a good scratch again. And then I jump back up there again. Now I'm getting up and I'm not spending so much time grooming um when I'm just laying along the horse, now I'm starting to join the things together. So now I'm jumping up and I'm placing my right leg over his rump and my legs are astride and then I sit up with my body and they're separate processes. Mm -hmm. And then I can start to join those three together. Now I can start to practice dismounting faster and I can practice even dismounting off the offside if I wish to, which is always a good thing to do. Yes, I like the way that you're training both sides as well. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it's not, not for everybody getting on a horse on the offside, but I know lots of people that have had to through injury or 
disabilities of some sort, but where they have to, they still want to ride their horse, but they can't get on it the near side because they can't lift their right leg over. So the only option for those riders is um, train their horses to be mounted from both sides. And at the end of the day, I don't think there's a wrong and a right side. I think everything should be symmetrical. I think there initially it was left side because the, most soldiers were right-handed and they had the sword on their left. So the sword was getting in the way when they were mounting. And I think that if we go back to a tradition where everyone carries swords again, we'll probably have to go back to just mounting on the left side. Yes, as it is interesting that because um, it wasn't that long ago I was fortunate enough to catch up with uh, my brother Andrew Menyon. I spent some time with him and Andrew and I had to talk about that and he found some papers that have actually revealed um, the real reason behind the near side is because horses that are completely naive to people tend to offer the near side um, much more reliably than the offside. So that tends to tell us something really important mm-hmm. here, and that is when horses mm-hmm. offer us the near side, it means that they're less scared of the near side, or that's, can I say, their bolder side or their bolder eye. And that's probably why most horses shy from right to left. So when a horses spin, most horses spin from right to left, and that's probably why. So, you know, that's a good thing about these journeys. You're always learning. There's, there's, nothing is ever static. Is that because people have always, right from foals, done more work on the left, or is that something that young foals are with? But then if it's the young foals, is it because of the mares? I mean, has this been tested on completely unhandled horses that they offer to the left, or is that more domesticated? Yes, oh, okay. okay. No, no, they were not educated animals. Yep. And and the, I think they covered in other, other grazing animals as well. So, you know, there's a difference between that, and that's probably why their necks and their ears are so mobile so that they can take in their whole environment and, and um, react or not to those sorts of um, occasions. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, well, let's go on then to number eight. I think I just like doing podcasts with you, Jonna. I think I just like doing podcasts with all of my guests because they've always got something interesting to say. All right, number eight. Remember, pressure motivates the reaction of release and pressure trains it. So pressure motivates the reaction, release of the pressure trains it. And I think that's an important thing that Tom Roberts was teaching, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was Tom Roberts, uh, and um, for him it was uh, profit, profit me not. And and um, that was where if you applied pressure, the pressure didn't go away until I got the desired reaction. And, and I thought that I'd put that in there because at this point, so I don't think there's any other other point in um, the education of the horse where one feels so vulnerable because now we're sitting on a horse and uh, all our, our entire training up until now is being thoroughly tested upon our own safety and the horse's welfare. So that's why I thought I'd put that in there and say, yes, pressure motivates the reaction, but the release of the pressure is so valuable because that's what trains it. Mm-hmm. All right, number nine. Soon you'll be able to reward your horse by dismounting. Now, you already said earlier about dismounting, but if you'd like to talk a bit more about that. Yeah, the dismounting procedure is a really important one because horses, and I've seen this in um, uh, a competition where riders fall off, um, and they're all of a sudden, especially the younger naive horses, when the rider starts to fall off, the horse panics further and they run faster. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you practice dismounting, quicker and quicker and not letting your horse move, then you're habituating the horse to that you it's quite quite normal for you to sometimes leap off your horse. And I, I leap off nearly every single horse that I ever ride. And I always tell the owner what I'm about to do so they're prepared for it, make sure everybody's in a safe location, etc. But I get off quite quickly or I might um get off the offside because it means now that um 
probably in the best position I possibly can because I don't have to get out of a saddle on bareback um, to get the horse accustomed to seeing me appear suddenly out of his right eye. And a lot of horses, when you dismount off the off the right hand side or on the off side, are much more afraid of you all of a sudden appearing there than the mm. near side. So again, it was talking about that near side and off side again. Mm. Mm. And we're talking about bringing a, a foal on right through. I'm sure that people are happy with their horses when you send them back if you've had them for this whole process, just preparing. And as you said, the, the horse is panicking when people half fall off. Yes, that's right. That's mm. right. Exactly. I totally agree. All right. Now, number 10 is to complete the habituation process. So what do we do there? Completing the habituation process really is making sure that I can touch the horse everywhere when I'm on the horse. For example, I can rub my legs left and right up and down his side with my left leg, my right leg. I can lay on him. I can lay across him. I can practice a bit of vaulting on and off him and he just stands there. When I can do that and the horse is not moving, in fact, they really, really enjoy this. This is probably the the most um, rewarding phase for not just the trainer but also for the horse, Um, consolidating that because the next step is all about now making sure that when we apply the reins, can I get a single step backwards? Because, mm-hmm. and then I, before, if I've done my habituation to, to being mounted, et cetera, and that has gone really, really um, calmly and well and very predictably, uh, all the responses are predictable, like park, for example, then I'm in a position now where I can dismount, apply the rein pressure with both reins, and ask for a step back. So I'm done, I've done this by dismounting first. The reason yep. I've done that is the most available reactions or or um, uh, yeah reactions from the horse are the most recent one you most recently reminded your horse of. So for example, I might be um, leaping up and down and he's standing. That's going quite well. But I may not have asked him to do a backward step. Um, for a day or two. So I'll just refresh that button by saying, when I'm on the near side, can you go back a step? Yes. Can you do the other diagonal pair and go back a step? Yes, you can. Can I do it from the offside? Yes, I can. Then I'll vault on. And when I vault on and swing up on the horse or get on the horse, I'm now sitting astride him or her right hand in my right hand and the left rein in my left hand. Then I'll apply both reins and say, now can you go back a step? This is the cornerstone of my stop button. So I'll check that first. I only want one step. Each diagonal pair, one step, and then the other diagonal pair, one step as well. <laughs> then, once I can do that, I'm in a position to uh, ask for um, go. Okay. And okay. I haven't covered that <laughs> in this one yet, have I? I've just done stop, I think. Have I? Well, we talked about stop. Yeah, yeah. You know, the way that you've done it with all these subtle little things all the time, I think someone can follow that process and if that's what's required, they, you know, because it's yeah. using the same method, isn't it? Yeah, it is. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. So, Jonna, just going back to the 10 steps of starting the young horse under saddle, I'd like to go back and just summarise. If I say the points, can you just say, you know, the main point, just just one or two sentences to, about the main yep. point within each one? The first one is ensure all pressure release systems are intact. Okay. And the pressure release systems that are most important are really stop and go and then park. And you also want back as well. So you want to make sure that those four things are really 
intact and able to withstand context changes such as environment, location, time of the day, etc. Good. Number two is check self-carriage status of these aids. Yes, so ma- making sure that self-carriage can... Uh, it's, a, it's a word that gets used a lot, but I think it gets misused a lot. Self-carriage means that the horse is doing all the work. You don't have to do anything, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're saying is that these will persist by themselves. So in other words, for example, park is probably the best one to use an example of. The horse will stay parked until you say otherwise. So that's what I mean by the self-carriage stages. You don't have to keep, re- keep repeating the aid. Okay. Number three is to repeat the exercise and consolidate with the bit in the horse's mouth. Yes. Yeah, so now we're transferring the aid from the head collar to the bit and we would like to make sure that the reactions uh, from him or her are exactly as they were in the head collar and that they're the same and it's important to keep them the same. Otherwise, we'll always have a horse that doesn't lead very well in the head collar but does in a bridle and that's quite common it's because those aren't exactly trained well enough according mm-hmm. to one another. Okay. Number four is beware the importance of context and try to mimic the sight and direction of rain and leg cues. Yes, and um, we've, we've talked about context, but what we're trying to do now is mimic what we need to be able to do in the future when we visualise ourselves being on the horse and where those aids are going to be applied, what part of the horse's body will be applied, uh, will be um, used. So my leg aid will be behind the girth, of course, and that's the site that I'd like to be able to um, try to create a go button from, or in my rain context, then my hand should be above the horse's neck on the ground to get a reverse cue before I try and test it out when I'm um, astride him or her. Okay. Number five is test the self-carriage of park by departing your horse and not allowing your horse to move. Yeah, and that's in preparation for the mounting to make sure that our habituation to to um, mounting can withstand another change of context to make sure it's really, really thoroughly trained that I can pretty much just walk up and jump up and down and that the horse isn't going to move. In preparation for that, I need to make sure that when I do move away from my horse, frontwards, sidewards, or wherever, he or she doesn't move away. Okay. Number six is the habituation process can now be started by practising the mounting. Yes, and that was what I was alluding to before, mm-hmm. is that now we can do that. We can then start to um, using mounting bike and laying over a horse or jumping up and down and that's in preparation for um, getting the horse completely used to um, us getting on them just in um, small stages on the near side and the offside. Yeah, yeah. And then number seven here, you talk about getting on them, keep the horse in park, start to mimic yeah. the actual process of mounting and dismounting. Yes, that's right. So yeah. everything that I do is then gets joined up and then slowly the last thing that I do is start to do it with faster and more realistic motions that I will be using in real life. Mm-hmm. Number eight, remember pressure motivates the reaction. The release of pressure trains it. That's perfect. I don't think I need to say about that. You said that very well. <laughs> okay. Number nine is soon you'll be able to reward the horse by dismounting. Yes, and so in conjunction with with the scratches um, on the neck and the loins, et cetera, et cetera, you can also reward your horse by saying, yes, you've done really well here and I'll get off. And then, of course, you know, it's quite a rewarding thing if you think of a lot of the horses in the world, you see this at Panda Club when kids fall off, the first thing they do, the horse sticks his head down and starts eating grass. Yep. So, you yep. know, it's, it's quite a rewarding thing for a horse because you are on its back and that is pressure and you getting off releases it. So it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. All right, number 10 is to complete the habituation process. 
Yes, and that's really just making sure that now we can start to get um, our horse used to us getting on the near side and the left side. We can even begin swinging up. We can practice being legged up. We can um, uh, get off quickly. We can get off slowly. We can get off in a variety of ways just to make sure that the horse is really comfortable seeing us from the near side eye, and the rear vision of its near side eye, and then the rear of its offside eye. Good, good. All right, John. And now, if people would like to contact you about getting the horse going to saddle or, or starting their foals or any part of their training at all, even get, doing a clinic on this, what's the best way for them to contact you? The best way to contact me is via, via our website, our Train to Win website. And I think you've given that out before. I do clinics um, in Perth regularly every five weeks or so, and in New Zealand every uh, seven weeks, and then also in Hobart four or five weeks, um, and also run clinics for various organisations here in Victoria as well. Okay. a number of ways of doing that. Mm-hmm, brilliant. John, looking forward to catching up with you again. I think those 10 tips to starting the young horse, you've just sort of continued on in just such a logical fashion. When I say logical, it certainly is logical listening, but there's lots of stuff that you've brought in that I hadn't even thought of. So, you know, lots of little steps as well. So very enjoyable and hopefully people get a lot more out of this and, you know, we get better trained horses and happy horses and horses that understand people a little more. That'd be good. That's exactly right. And so the next one is probably one of the most important ones that we do when we start talking about our go-to because there are more problems that roll out of a horse not going than uh-huh. anything else. As we've seen you know, in racing recently, and we see it all the time, that horses that don't go produce all sorts of problematic behaviour. So that's going to be an interesting one as well. Yep, good. All right, look forward to talking to you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you, Glenn. Okay, bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 